0: Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Over the years I've interviewed a lot of people, most, if not all of which, have either made meaningful contributions to their specific chosen discipline, or have had something worth listening to to say on the subject. In many departments, Jim Whitby, who I'm linking up with here, has arguably made the biggest contribution to be discussed so far. Your angling CV alone suggests that in terms of international representation, you have to be one of, if not the most experienced sea angler in the country.
1: Well, I have done a wide range of fishing. I started off fishing in a Euro Shore match for England with the EFSA team. I then did light tackle fishing out in South Africa for the England team. I fished in the Euro boats. A game championship, a game for an England team, and uh, culminated with fishing six times for England in the World Boat Championship. So I have covered a wide range of techniques while I'm fishing. I actually didn't start as a shore fisherman. I really took up fishing when I injured my knee badly playing football. I was a mad keen footballer, and I went straight into um, competition boat fishing. My brother-in-law was a keen angler as well, but he was so poorly and sick when he was out in the boat, I decided to start a shore section up at our local club, and that got me into the shore fishing as well. From there on, I started the Sussex Leagues. The first year I ran it, I think back in 1980, we had 31 teams of five fishing all the venues along the Sussex coast. And that was about the time that um, the samph movement was getting going because there was some argument at the time about whether there should be big payouts of money or not. And Sam came in and set up a good formula to work to, where everybody knew where they stood about zone payouts and such. And uh, that clarified a lot in those days. And then I got really into the club boat fishing and um, won my club championship numerous times. I think I ended up winning it 13 times, but wanted to stretch my limits so further. I also won the Southern Division Boat Championship and the personal members for the NFSA local one. Got talking to Brian Meads, who was a well-known international angler at the time, said, how do I get into furthering things? So he suggested I joined EFSA, and if I was good enough, I'd get into the teams. And it went from there. But the one thing I was really keen on all the time, as fishing, was that... EFSA and NFSA in the past had always seemed at loggerheads. The teams were always different and one was always slagging the other off and I didn't like it. And I joined both and put in for both teams. And in fact, I think myself and Mick Toomer were the first people to actually fish both for EFSA and the NFSA. We both fished the World Championship down in Portugal the first time together and... I feel it helped draw the two organisations together. Obviously other people who are administrators took it the further Peter Peck and other people, forward-minded think, people got together to bring it closer. I mean, in recent years, it's ended up, I've been a selector for the NFSA, also a public relations officer for EFSA, and I've helped select the teams for both organisations. So I think the marrying of the two has come together now with the angling trust we've really just got the one organization i think it's all to the good of angling place yourself in terms of combined experience on the international scene i've always been keen to see things run properly i started my own club shore and boat section and ran them both for many many years like 22 years i ran the sussex league for about six years Again, because I wanted to see things done properly. But in recent years, I've let others come in and do things. I mean, I've I've worked finding sponsorship for the EFSA, for the European Championships and things like that. But I wouldn't say I was a great mover and shaker. I have, as I say before, I I like the idea of getting the organisations together. And I'm a competitive angler and I wanted to compete at the highest level. And I've been lucky enough to do that. So how did you see V read in terms of medals? Well, I've had success sort of all the way round. really. I'm, I'm thrilled to bits to have done it. So after the club championships and the divisional championships, I moved on to EFSA. Probably the greatest success there, I was captain of the EFSA team when we went to Norway, where we'd never won a medal, and we won the gold medal easily that year. That was tremendous. And then I... Captain, a light tackle team down in South Africa. We didn't win down there, but that was a fantastic championship. I fished two game championships in the European Federation and won gold in both of those, but they were team events, so it's not just me, it was a team effort. And then, of course, in the World Championships, I was lucky enough we had won the silver medal, I think that was in Belgium, and the bronze medals in Denmark. So they were quite highlights. Well worth burgling, then.
0: (laughs) But on a more serious note, a very impressive CV, as I was saying. However, within that, there has to be some sort of personal preference. So to better understand what and where that lies, it might help to do a run-through of what led you along your particular sea-angling path.
1: Well, I was born at Pevensey Bay, right on the sea, and with my young brother, we spent all our time on the beach. We used to put sand lines out. That's where you peg a line down on the beach, at low tide, and the tide comes in, you catch the fish. When the tide goes out, take the fish off. We were each given a lug spade when we were about 10 or 12 by an old fisherman, and we used to dig lugworm and sell them to holidaymakers, and that developed. We just enjoyed fishing, but football was my real game, until I mucked my knee up, I did a bad cartilage injury, then I had to look for something competitive to take its place. And fishing was the thing that did that. And uh, I just went into it wholeheartedly. As I say, first of all, I started boat fishing. I used to do a lot of the big matches along the south coast for the shore. But what happened was I ended up trying to do both, beach and boat. And I got to one championship, and I'd taken the wrong box. I had all my shore stuff, and it was a boat championship. And I thought, this is daft. I've got to change. I've got to concentrate on one thing or the other. So in nineteen eighty eight I made a conscious decision that I'm going to stop shore fishing and concentrate on the boats. And from there it went brilliant. I'm in the I think that year or the following year I won the European COD Championship. That was a great start. I won the five day Plymouth International, the five day Weymouth International and things took off really well. That's how because of those sort of results I managed to get into the world boat team.
0: And while all of that's going on, there's still the more down-to-earth day-to-day fishing, too. So how has that changed in terms
1: of quality over your time? Well, it's funny. Everybody says that the fishing back in the 60s and 70s was brilliant and all this. But in 1967, I think it was, the Angler's Mail produced an Angler's Logbook. And being a fanatic at the time, only young... I bought the log book and I've started filling it in from 1967. I've got it in front of me here. Kept a log. I went out 135 times that year. And that was only in a 10-foot dinghy. That was quite a number of times to go out fishing. And the results were no better than you get today. It's rubbish to say that the sea was full of fish and all this. The fishing then... Mind you, I was only probably limited to four or five miles out, but the same could be said today. I'm sure the results would be almost similar. In fact, the results would probably be better today because of several reasons. We always used to anchor down. Everybody went out fishing out of Eastbourne anchored down. Nowadays, nobody anchors. We drift for the place, we drift for cod, we drift for pollock, and it's changed the fishing. The quality of the tackle... The knowledge and the technique and the baits used means we're getting the best out of the fishing and as I say on many fish it's better now than it was then.
0: With certain species you could argue the same up here in Lancashire and very likely in most other places if the truth be known. Some species, cod for example, have declined dramatically but we had a good spell on the bass for a few years and currently there are lots of rays and plaice mixed in amongst all the usual stuff. It seems to work in cycles, with not everybody necessarily being at the same part of the cycle at the same time.
1: Well, there are cycles. If one fish has a good year, it's probably eaten the young of another fish and keeps them back, and you're right. You get a year where there's a lot of dabs, a year where there's a lot of place, and another year it'll be all cod or something else. You never get all of them together. (laughs) It definitely works in cycles. One year, I mean, we had a run of dabs in Pevensey Bay that was just unbelievable. I weighed in forty-five pounds of dabs in one competition. I think there was a hundred and fifteen dabs or something like that. But the year after, if you got ten on a day, you're doing well. But now we've had years of place. The last three years off Eastbourne and the Sussex coast have been a tremendous run of place. We've had a good run of codlin up to six, ten pounds within five miles ashore, which is not something we get regularly here. So you can never go out and think, right, this year it's going to be Bass or Cod or Place. It'll be one of them, but not all of them.
0: Speaking with a friend of yours recently, Tim McPherson, he made the point that Black Bream had been slipping steadily into decline along the Sussex course for quite a number of years, to the extent that people are now starting to take action to try to bring about some degree of reversal.
1: Well, I won a match down at Shoreham, I think with 63 pound of bream, and every single bream I caught and everybody else caught was brought back to the weigh-in. In the end, the fishing on those rocks just went completely dead. I mean, not only because of the anglers catching and keeping them, they were getting caught down in the Bay of Biscay and places like that, netted heavily. And it really died a death, the fishing at um, Littlehampton, with the enlightenment of conservation and things, the stocks have been building up, and there's been some fabulous catches. I do remember an NFSA competition they had there a few years back, where over a thousand black bream were caught, but only four were brought back for weighing in. All the others, all lots of females full of row and all put back alive. So we are enlightened these days, and give the fish a chance, at least. And so we should. Too right.
0: Mixed in amongst that lot was national representation on the light tackle scene, and thinking back, this is the area where I first remember coming across the name Jim Whippy many years ago, though not, I would add, in the direct competitive sense that you touched on there. Rather, it was for the making of headlines with a whole string of IGFA world line-class records, and more to the point, making a whole pile of money into the bargain.
1: Well, I read about a guy, I think it was Brian Taylor from Paynton, who had won a thousand dollars because he broke a world record for Pollock. Then a few months later another record dribbed through that someone had broken a world record and got a thousand dollars, and I thought, what the devil's this all about? And Berkeley Trilene, or Berkeley, were promoting a line called Trilene, and they were offering a thousand dollars for any world records taken on their line. So I set about trying to find out what these records were. And it was line class records. You know, anything from 4K, 6K, 8K, the best court on each of these lines. And I couldn't find the records. Eventually I got hold of Ray Rush, I think it was, who used to be the secretary of the British Light Tackle Club. And he provided me with this list. And uh, when I looked at it, I could not believe bass. And eels, I think, were the two that struck me. They'd just been accepted onto the IGFA list as Game Fish. So they were open. There was no records. Or just an odd one. And the women's ones were all empty. And some of the men's on the bass. And, I mean, two days before, I'd been out just to a little local wreck catching bass. So I thought... Well, hang on, if I put one in, whatever size, it's got to be a record. So I bought all the spools of line from 4kg up to about 15kg and set up my rods with them and I went out fishing and started breaking these records. I took the wife with me because she was a keen angler at the time. She won our ladies' championship a couple of times. And we went out and we worked our way through starting on the 4kg, then the 6kg, sending these records off, and catching them 4 and 5, 6, 7, 8 pounds. My wife even had one 12 pound 3. And we're talking about a little wreck, no more than 200 yards offshore. But we kept sending the records off to the IGFA, not knowing anything. We didn't hear a thing for, I think, at least 4 or 5 months. But I kept going out, doing the records, and sending them off, thinking, well, it'll all come about Eventually we got a letter back through to say the first one we'd done had been accepted as a record. I thought, wow, that means we've got $1,000 there. And then the letter started coming through regularly. This one had broken a record, that one had broken a record. we have gone out and broken it again. And uh, that first year we did 16. And we had a big presentation with Bernard Cribbins and a few other people in England who had started doing the same sort of thing. And, uh, yeah, we got cheques for $16,000. Now, the second year, Berkeley realised that they were getting hammered. People all over the world were going for the records on Trilene and um, numerous were getting caught. They said, each person only had one for the year. So, as I've got three daughters, I thought, well, they're, they're women, so I took each of the daughters out. And they each had world records. (laughs) So the next year, I think we ended up with five. I had one, my wife and the three daughters each had one. The youngest daughter, I think, was 11 at the time. She got her picture printed in the International Game Fishing Association book. 11-year-old Anna Whippy with an 8-pound, 8-ounce bass breaks the world line class record for 8-pound line. Then the following year, after we got uh, five that year, so that was like 21. They said you could get $2,000 if you use our Berkeley Lightning Rod and our Trialine line. So I bought five Berkeley Trialine uh, rods and off we went again. That year though, um, we, I think only three of the records came on the rod and the line and a couple of the others came on the line but different rods. But it all ended up after four years of this, and um, they stopped the scheme, but we had managed to do 31 records. <laughs> and, of course, at the time, the exchange rate was almost even, a pound to a dollar, so it was pretty worthwhile. That was from 1984 to 1988, I think that ran for. So that was quite an exciting time. Now, while all of this was going on, in terms of paying the regular day-to-day bills,
0: You was, I believe, in the carpet trade, which hit a sticky patch prompting you to test the water on the journalistic scene.
1: I was. I I started as a carpet fitter and um, became a carpet specialist and ran my business for 28 years. But in the early 90s, there was a recession and nobody bought any carpets. And um, going back, I've always been a communicator. And when I was 15, playing football for our under-18s team, I always used to see the reports in the paper and never our team. And I thought, at 15, I'm going to write a report and send it in. And the next Saturday it appeared in the paper. I thought, this is great. So every week I wrote a report on our football team. And then, when I got seriously into the fishing, I started doing a regular fishing report. And it became quite a regular thing in the Eastbourne Herald. I must have written for seven to nine years regularly, the, the angling reports. And when this recession hit, someone said, why didn't you start a paper for sea anglers? And I thought, oh, I don't know whether we can or not. And it transpired in the end that um, we gave it a go. I created Sea Angling News. It was a free paper. We printed about 12,000 copies a month and delivered them out to shops in the whole of the South, well, actually from... Orford or Alborough up on the east coast right round to Weymouth down in the south west. I delivered them in a little old white van all on my own all round that area wrote the whole thing myself virtually in my 10x10 office down in Pevensey Bay and got Pat and myself we sold adverts to support it and we did that for three solid years. I worked about 14 hours a day I reckon to make that go Pat used to come and dragged me off the computer sometimes. I mean, had some horrendous days where I pressed the wrong button and lost a whole day's work in those early days, as you know all about. But then, after running that for three years, I'd taken a break. I'd worked so hard. We had a a week away. Came back, there was a message from Tony Keogh saying, are you interested in running a national colour magazine? Because David Hall Publishing wants an editor and to create a magazine to go up against Sea Angler. And, of course, I said, yeah, I'll take a chance. <laughs> and that's what I did next. I rung David Hall and met up with him, and uh, things went on from there. But well, that wasn't the end for Sea Angling News. No, no. I sold it to Norman Berry, a guy down Portsmouth Way, and uh, he kept it going up to within about two years ago, and... And uh, now it's been taken on by Dave Roberts from Minehead, a charter skipper down there, and it's still going very healthy little paper, very highly thought of. So yes it's still running. And this is the point at which you and I started to collaborate,
0: with you ultimately becoming my boss for quite a few years. At the time I was doing all of my writing for EMAP. The company's since changed its name to Bower, but the titles which include Sea Angler and Angling Times are still the same. I remember at the time wondering what I should do. We had spoken about me making some contributions, but it's no secret that I wasn't too sure. Perhaps I thought that Total Sea Fishing, which was the title in question, might not survive going head-to-head with Sea Angler. Oh, ye of little faith, it's still going strong today in 2014, but not for a long time with you at the helm.
1: When I started Total Sea Fishing, Because I'd fished on the international scene, I had no experience of running a national magazine, but I had so many friends in the business, you know, of of top fishermen, and I just asked them to help. And I had people like Jim Presley, who had been a double world champion, wrote for me. Trevor Rooney had been an an international shore angler. Graham Pullen, of course, is very well known. And I rang these guys up, and they all put um, articles to me, and, and it just went great, right from the start. And I believe, I'm not quite, you know, I'm not quite sure where you came in, but I do know I did speak to you about doing articles for me, and you were very iffy about leaving, uh, was it Boat Angler you were with? I'm not sure myself, to be honest.
0: I do remember doing some articles with no author name. Like I've said, it was the uncertainty of the outcome of going head-to-head that concerned me, because it was never going to be an
1: easy task going up against Sea Angler's long-established name. No, no, what an easy task. We knew we'd never match them on numbers, but, you know, we got a really hard core of readers um, who appreciate what we're doing. And, of course, that, again, is another magazine that is still going today. Obviously, I started that, and I stayed as editor for three years, then moved on from there.
0: Again, with eMap in your sights, because they'd been running a magazine called Boat Angler, which they decided to incorporate into Sea Angler creating a bit of a gap in the market, which I believe you decided to exploit. And this time, I was only too happy to
1: defect. Yeah, well, what it was, halfway through my other of the ship of the Total Sea Fishing, as you say, EMAP decided, I don't think Boat Angler was doing that brilliant, so they decided to cut it, but incorporate it into the back of the Sea Angler. And I thought to myself, uh, if ever I leave Total Sea Fishing, there's an opportunity for a boat angling magazine there still. I mean, I always liked Boat Angler, because at that time I was doing only boats, and I didn't want to read about shore fishing and other things like that, so I knew that there were like-minded people who would still appreciate a boat angling magazine.
0: But if EMAP couldn't make it pay, though admittedly their overheads would have been far greater
1: than a small private company, did you not feel it was a gamble? a risk. Do you know, I didn't. I felt that I had enough name in the business and people I knew that I could do something with it. I was never going to match the numbers probably they were doing. But as you said, with lower overheads and um, targeted people, I could make it work. And um, I'm, I'm very pleased to say that I did. I don't want
0: to embarrass you here, in the eyes of many people, it not only worked through identifying and then satisfying a market niche, but more crucially, because you was at the helm, guiding it in a direction in terms of content that people could really identify with and enjoy.
1: This is one of the things that did give me some credibility, the fact that I was fishing at the highest level. The other thing I felt really strongly about was there was a chance of running a national boat league, and I did put it to... um, David Hall at Total sea Fishing when I was there and got it all set up with the NFSA to run it and found that they had decided to go with a, a pen qualifier, a different setup altogether. So the league was shelved. So I knew that if I did start a magazine up, I had that I could use because it was sort of almost there in structure, just waiting to be put into operation. And as soon as I started Boat Fishing Monthly, that's one of the things I did and immediately won it yourself. Well, yeah, I mean, the whole point there, you had to win your club matches locally, and if you had good results there, you got into the 10-man national final, and I think I won four out of the five competitions I fished at our club and qualified as a finalist. Although I was editor of the magazine, I still decided I'd fish it. But we had sponsorship from uh, Suzuki and Warrior Boats, I think, at the time. And I actually won the uh, final by quite a fair margin. And at the presentation, I had a word with the Suzuki rep and said that I decided not to um, take the prize. And when they announced it, I offered it to the person who came second, which was a considerable surprise to him. (laughs) £12,500 worth of price. But I've got to say that I didn't miss out on that. Because I was editor of the mag, Warrior offered me a boat to use for the next year, and Suzuki offered me an engine to use, so although it wasn't mine, I had the use of the top quality gear.
0: Then, as with Total Sea Fishing before, you felt the time was right to call it a day, only this time selling the title rather than vacating it.
1: I don't see angling news, so obviously I could sell it. Not for a lot of money, but it was because I wanted to get out to work for David Hall on Total Sea Fishing. But I was only working on a wage, as an editor's wage, for David Hall. Jolly good, I thoroughly enjoyed the job, and I've got to say it now, I really appreciated the chance that David Hall gave me. I mean, I'd only edited a black and white local newspaper, and he took me on to be editor of Total Sea Fishing, which was brilliant of him. It worked out successfully, I'm pleased to say, but I felt all along if I was ever going to be able to retire with some money, I needed a magazine of my own. So I looked around to see if I could find someone to sponsor me, and I was lucky enough to find someone who was prepared to back me, and this is why I left uh, Total Sea Fishing. And to all intents,
0: you was growing it on very nicely. But the magazine world was changing. Information was suddenly freely available on the internet, and young people were shying away from outdoor pursuits generally, in favour of game stations and the like.
1: Well, there was a lot of things. At the time, we were still on the up. The boom was still going. Everything was going great. There was advertising money. And I had someone... No, I don't know whether it's... No, I think we decided to check to see whether it was a viable thing to sell, and I got on to... An agency who sold businesses and they came up with a uh, quite a lofty price and said it's worth and I thought Whoa. yeah I, I was getting on to um, round the 65 mark was it I think or maybe a bit just before then with a view to retiring so I thought well let's go for it let's see if anyone's prepared to offer the money that he's talking about and as it happened Two companies came in and started sort of throwing money to take it over, while I sat back and let them argue over it. In the end, Warner Brothers, up in Peterborough, who had been printing it, they bought it. So, it was terrific. I was able to pack up and retire. With hindsight, do you think that a general publisher
0: with so many different titles was the right company for such a specialist magazine?
1: I do, because... Their whole um, company ethos at the time, they had lots of small magazines, not doing massive mounts, but all within, in a niche area. And so they were quite happy to take on a thing like a fishing mag that had obviously been quite successful for them. and they kept me on for a year uh, as a consultant, obviously, and asked about uh, anyone who could do the editing. And um, Dave Barham, my deputy at Total Sea Fishing and had taken over there as editor, and um, Warners then eventually took him on to be editor of Boatfisher Monthly. And subsequently, uh, he goes on to own the magazine, but uh, that's another story, which I am planning to ask you about shortly. But before I ask
0: that, do you not think that magazines generally are at a crossroads in terms of viability as new delivery technologies take over from the printed word? Plus, of course had already been hinted at, people are drifting away from outdoor pursuits such as fishing in huge numbers anyway.
1: Well, I, subsequently, yes, but I, I wasn't aware of how fast things were going to move electronically. I mean, the workload now for the editors is probably double. They've virtually got to do all the stuff they do for the magazine plus all the stuff for the website and Twitter and all these other things that I'd never got into. I mean, that was one of the things I said to myself when I was editor, any of these arguments or things that cropped up online between the few people who were doing it, there was always someone slagging someone off, even if they said something about me, I never, ever responded. Because as soon as you respond, you then antagonise the other side and they come back at you and it escalates. I just let it die. If anyone said anything about my magazine or me, I never said a word. Just let it die a natural death. And I felt that was the best way. But nowadays, of course, people feel forced to respond, and uh, there's so much electronic going on. I I wouldn't want to be doing it now. Then, warners themselves pulled the plug.
0: What was going on there?
1: Uh, I don't know. I'm quite sure that it became quite tough. To sell advertising, not only in that magazine, but I think generally. Things have started a downturn, and this is what, in a way, surprised me that Dave took the magazine on. Because, obviously, if Warner were packing it up, things were getting pretty hard, I should imagine. But uh, I'm impressed, actually, Dave has managed to keep it going in these difficult times, with the extra added stuff that he's got to do, with all this stuff on the internet and websites and things. That said, it does seem to grow thinner and thinner month on month. Yes, but that is based on sales and advertising revenue. You can't put out 120 pages if you're not getting the revenue in to do it. But if you've got perhaps a lesser amount of people buying it, but you can give them good value in 75 or 80 pages, then it's probably the way you've got to go.
0: Back in 2012... I was down at Bower recording a similar interview to this with Mel Russ, and even today, his magazine Sea Angler positively strides along in terms of content, page count, and all the rest. So it can be done.
1: Yeah, I mean, let's face it, it developed a great name. I mean, the first magazine people think of is Sea Angler. If you ask nearly anybody, what magazine... Oh, Sea Angler, Sea Angler. And it's kept a good standard up. There's no question about that. It distributes well... If you've got a lot of power behind the publishing company, and they can place the magazine everywhere they want to, that's another big plus. I was totally shocked when uh, I started Boat Fishing Monthly to find that I had to give W.H. Smith £6,000 just to put the magazine in their shops. And another group wanted £4,000. And it was a staggering amount of money just to get it in their shop so they could sell it and still take their profit so a good, keen, large organisation who've got the power to say whoops, hang on we're not paying you this sort of money for this mag because you've got our other 20 mags they'd probably save them quite a considerable amount of money wheelering, dealering on the distribution side so um, that is a definite factor how Sea Angler kept the strength in the market I'm sure And eventually, I suppose, when things do go totally
0: digital, you escape from all this over-printing and sale return stuff, too.
1: You're right, yeah. The other thing I I must say, uh, I'm pretty staggered that Mel Russ has stayed as editor of Sea Angler such a long time. I mean, it must have been seven years ago I heard that he was going to be leaving and going to retire. But he he must have done a good twenty years as editor. And... I've got to say, he is a very good editor. People in a position like his always get slagged off. But you've got to say, for someone to keep that job and to keep that magazine fresh enough to stay as a market leader, he's got to have done a good job. Couldn't agree more.
0: And a much nicer person when you meet him face-to-face than some people might have you believe.
1: Yes, that's true. But isn't that always the way people couldn't portray people as all sorts of things, but when you actually meet people face to face, I mean, I've heard things about Alan Yates, but when you meet Alan, he'll give you anything, tell you anything about fishing. He doesn't keep it to himself. He's, He's a great guy, and most of the other people in the fishing world are the same. We all want everybody to catch fish.
0: This pretty much brings it up to present. You're in good health and still doing plenty of fishing. So what exactly are you up to now?
1: Well, I think just continue to enjoy my life. I mean, I have been so, so lucky to have been taken all around the world when I was editor to fish different places. I've been out on all the top charter boats to do features. It's just been a really great life. And now I write for Sussex Angling Media, which is a website on Sussex Angling. Tim McPherson started it. And I write for him regularly on shore and boats. I still write for Dave in Boat Fishing Monthly. I do features for him and um, questions and answers and things like that. But the rest of the time I spend with my grandchildren and fishing. <laughs> and what more could you want? So what type of fishing
0: turns you on now when you can fish for pleasure rather than looking for magazine features?
1: I don't do pleasure angling. <laughs> I was sort of say that. I am... A competitive angler. I hate pleasure fishing. <laughs> it's the a dull thing to say why I hate it. I have to have something to go for. I could not go down the beach and throw out a line and just fish and say, oh yeah, I caught a dab, or will put it back. I need to be trying to beat somebody, or beat a record, or win a species hunt, or something. And that's how my life's always been. So what does the future hold? Not only for Jim Whippy
0: but also the rest of us in terms of magazines, fish numbers and all that goes with it?
1: That's a really difficult one to answer. Um, I mean, we've got online angling TV, we've got digital electronic magazines. I still personally, and I know a lot of people like to have the hold of a glossy magazine in my hand to read, I find I don't get any satisfaction at all reading it on a computer. So I'm sure there will always be magazines. But I think because the younger generation have got their Kindles and their iPads and everything else, the need for the magazines will reduce. And it's funny, we can say, I can't see the time when there are no magazines, but it could well happen.
0: When I was down at Bower mel was just about to launch the first digital edition of sea angler with its built-in access to extra photo libraries and video examples of what was being explained in its articles which has to be a huge leap forward
1: yeah if you're prepared to sit in front of a flickering screen and watch it i hate it all those hours i spent writing the magazines in front of computers oh it's ghastly couldn't wait to get off it is different. I mean, the young kids from today start off with an iPad on their lap or a game or whatever it is. They're so used to it. But um I know my generation still like to hold a magazine in their hand. Whether they will die out altogether, well, who knows? Things do move on so quickly. You know, who would have said braid would have taken over sea fishing like it has in the last ten years? People who make mono... Must be tearing their hair out. You could say the same about
0: digital photography. We both worked most of our lives with film. In fact, I bought one of the first digital cameras in the country. It was a 3.3 megapixel version, and I first used it to duplicate some transparency film coverage of a wrecking trip out of Bethelic for you. Oh, yes! When I inquired as to whether you could use digital, you said you didn't know, but you would ask at the printers, so I sent both versions down and that resulted in the first ever fully digitally illustrated fishing
1: article in the UK. Well, I can tell you, my Boat Fishing Monthly was the first angling mag to use a digital picture on the front page, because as soon as I started it, I said, I'm going to go modern. I didn't know a lot about it, but I used digital pictures on that front page from the very first day, and I'm glad I did. I mean, some were a bit grainy to start with, but um, the development, as, as you say, was absolutely amazing. At David Hall's, I had to do everything by transparencies. And that was a nightmare. When everybody started using digital, it just made my life so much easier. So yes, we've got to accept there are new things always coming through. And it could be that magazines will fade from existence. I rue the day.
0: This is the point where I would normally start to sum things up, but this time I'm going to give the final few words to you. So sum up for us, if you will, your fishing life, your fishing and your fishing involvement.
1: Let's start from the point of conservation. My wife looks at me now. She used to be an angler. She now says, look at what you do as a sport. Compare with golf and tennis. She said, it's dirty and you're killing animals. And I thought, oh crikey, in fact we are. But, in saying that, let's look at the good things that anglers have done. The rivers of England would be full of chopping trolleys and rubbish if the anglers hadn't insisted on having clean water where their fish could stay alive. The anglers in the boats, the work they put in, stopping netting, and the outright massacre of fish in the sea, the way we've changed over to catch and release. Very few fish are brought back. We don't hate them. We don't kill them because we hate them. We love fish. I'm still as excited on every fish I catch as I was when I started. I just love it. I love the whole concept of it. And um people can't actually see, if they're not an angler themselves, how much enjoyment there is, the thrill of the hunt, the preparation and the sheer joy of being outside doing something in the outside world.
0: How long may that remain so. Can't think of anything we've missed, can you?
1: Um. So let's just jot back through the um the things you said, see if there's anything we missed out on. I was going to say about records. There's always been a, a feeling that he had a British record, but he put it back alive What a hero. I'm not completely happy with that. One of the best things that ever happened was Vic Evans getting a hundred and thirty-three pound conger in nineteen ninety-nine. The reason I say it's the best thing, through the seventies, eighties, and nineties, everyone who got a conger over about ninety pounds brought them back, killed them because they wanted to beat the record that was about a hundred pounds. And numerous fish were brought back that were never going to break this record. But as soon as he put that hundred and thirty-three pounder in. It just stopped that dead. Unless you get a conger that's nearly hundred and fifty pounds, you're not going to bother to bring it back. So, by keeping a record, I reckon that saved eels <laughs> Certainly, a lot of hundred pounders, and the same with um, smoothhounds. A lot of people say, "Oh, we've got a wonderful smoothhound. We put it back alive. It's a record." If they'd brought that one back and established a good record, nobody would have worried about bringing. Ones that were close. And one fish out of a species is never going to change the whole world. When you come into a port with one fish you're going to put for a record claim, and the boat next to you is a trawler, he's got ten boxes of bass and fifteen boxes of skate. Never gonna make any difference that one fish. I've had this conversation
0: with the voice recorder running with Mike Healing, Chairman of the British Record Fish Committee, arguing that weight is only one way of expressing the size of a fish. A point system based on quick inboard measurements out at sea then releasing the fish is equally valid.
1: Yeah, I do agree. But I have seen some uh, extraordinary weights given on a charter boat where the thing's tipping about and they range from... Oh, dear. All the more reason to get away from weights and record fish in a different way, then. Funny you say that. Now, I fished a match on the shore at the weekend, a catch and release, where everything over 18 centimetres was measured, and counted for points. They've made a chart up where every single fish you catch has got a qualified points all put back alive. Now, the glory about that is people having 20 fish in the day. Probably only two of them would have matched up to size limits. But those two fish would have been killed and brought back to the weigh-in as it used to be, and the other ones completely disregarded and thrown back in. But Why not record them?
0: Yeah, you don't need size limits if everything's going back.
1: Exactly, yeah, and um, I was really impressed with the way it went. All the fish went back alive, but instead of having five ounces to your name, you might have got 150 or 200 points for the fish you've had. A much better way of doing it.
0: But that's for the future. I sometimes wonder what people looking back at what we see as a norm today will actually make of it all. But perhaps it's best sometimes that we won't be around to find out. So all that remains is to say a very big thank you to Jim Whippy for his contribution to Angling Over the Years and for his contribution here today.